standard issue for all women. Hello, hello, party people, and indeed non-party people, of which I am very much one. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, Mickey again. I already covered the British weather in the mail out, but consider this another bloody hell, eh? There was much more fascinating chat in this week's Bush Telegram, promise. So if you're not already subscribed to our weekly newsletter, then get yourself to standardissuepodcast.com. Put your details in the box at the bottom of the homepage and you will receive written missives from me, Hannah and Jen. Right, back to this here podcast episode in which I'm chatting to the mighty Joe Caulfield, comedian, all-round excellent woman and now author. Joe has penned The Funny Thing About Death, a truly lovely, funny and moving book about illness and grief, but mostly about her big sister Annie and their relationship. Annie Caulfield was a travel writer, dramatist, broadcaster and a spinner of yarns. If you've been with Standard Issue since our online magazine days, you'll no doubt have read some of Annie's stuff that she wrote for us and probably also Joe's gorgeous articles about grief after Annie died in 2016. In this Chops, Joe and I chat siblings in general, Annie in particular, getting, or indeed not getting, to grips with someone you love dying, how to not get ashes in your face, and, well, the funny things about death. Joe's book is really special, and it is available from all good bookshops with all proceeds going to Macmillan. Because that's the kind of woman she is. Comedian, firm standard issue favourite, and now author... Joe Caulfield, hello. <laughs> Getting used to that author, I just immediately feel they're very grand. Do you feel you know? fancy? <laughs> I do feel fancy, yeah. I was wondering how acerbic and high status you were feeling today. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've just spent an hour and cried on the phone to HMRC, which I realised is the trick because then they get things done. I was so frustrated, yeah. So I was like, well, that's not very high status and acerbic. But it worked. It worked, it worked. a treat. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that's really interesting for people because I think if people are familiar with your comedy or familiar with the stuff that you used to write for Standard Issue or a lot of the stuff you used to write for Standard Issue, that sort of vulnerability. Joe Caulfield, quite shut up. She doesn't even have tear ducts. What the <laughs> fuck are you on about? Yeah, they shoot out like bullets, my tears. <laughs> that, yeah. I believe it. I absolutely believe it. <laughs> But you have written a very beautiful, very funny, very moving book called The Funny Thing About Death, which is about lots of things, but mostly about your older sister, Annie. And listeners who used to read us when we were an online magazine will have read Annie's brilliant articles and will have also read your gorgeous articles about Annie and about grief after she died in 2016. But for people who are new to Annie, could you tell us a little bit about her, please? She was a very exciting older sister to have I was just always just watching her going oh what is she wearing what is she doing uh, uh, I remember things like David Bowie to me sounded like oh he sounds like he can't sing but Annie's very interested in him <laughs> so I will be interested in him and also because he wasn't like conventionally good looking and like I was about 10 I got that I thought well I think David Cassidy is much more handsome <laughs> but it was like pushed me to that area of going oh let's look at the the weirdos in life and uh, and also she, and always very restless, like you know, to start traveling from a very early age. She was interested in going abroad and reading weird writers and being a communist. And like we were, we had a very conventional upbringing. Parents were Catholic, Irish Catholics. We went to convent school, 
but we were also brought up on REF camp. So it was very regimented. Mm-hmm. And she would be always sort of, you know, saying things like, you know, fuck the Pope and nuns are wrong and <laughs> I'm never getting married and I'm a communist, you know, all sort of things that people go, oh, my God, what's wrong with her? You know? And uh, so she was always just exciting and funny, very funny. One of those people that you can do the most boring thing with and have a hilarious time, like to just sort of poot around the supermarket with her. We would just be in hysterics and looking and judging. That was one of our favourite things. And she was a brilliant person to look and judge. And funnily enough, her best friend has just said to me, I'm going to a wedding soon. And Annie would have gone to this wedding. And she went, oh, there's just so much looking and judging that won't be happening because Annie's not there, you know. And just that way of going, oh. And one of her favourite expressions was, oh, she's no better than she ought to be. Sort of only would make (laughs) like, like judgment, just sort of, you know, funny. So very funny. And also... An extremely loyal person as well. Very loyal, very brave in that. Brave sometimes where you go, oh, God. Uh, Like she couldn't help herself sometimes from telling people what she thought about things. And in certain situations, just like, oh, you really don't. Oh, God, she's gone over there. She's, (laughs) She's saying like, you know, she hated this play or she hates this or what's wrong. You know, just like would say that. And then afterwards, she'd be kind of always a bit shocked to go, well, they were very offended. <laughs> but but it was like she it was always very just sort of came out of her. Like she it was like she wasn't trying to be sort of dangerous or have opinions. She would just say things and then go, Oh, then I realised I was the only person in the room who thought like that. <laughs> when I was reading the book, obviously the phrase acerbic and high status is how you've been described on stage. And yeah. I just thought, Abby is acerbic and high status. That was yes, how I yeah. I saw her. Yes, she she is. But also that element of an absolute fool as well, like that she would be aware of herself enough. And there was nothing funnier than if you pointed out that she was being acerbic and pompous about something, (laughs) like she would just roar with laughter about what an idiot she was being, you know. So mixed up with that at the same time. She does sound like she's one hell of a big sister, And I loved it because it feels like Annie influenced you in lots of ways and you sort of followed her like in that little sister way that we do in lots of ways. But she also really egged you on and encouraged you to be you, if that makes sense. Yeah, you might think in a possibly not the best advice way. (laughs) When I remember I'd gone with friends to Greece after taking my A-levels. We went on a bus because there weren't cheap flights then. And getting back to London and phoning my mum and dad to get my A-level results. And my A-level results were terrible. But I blamed them because they'd kept me in a convent until like fifth form. And then I went to day schools and there was boys and alcohol and fun. I wasn't interested in studying. Um, (laughs) So my results were really bad. And my dad sort of said, well, you've you've got to come back and you've got to retake them. And Annie went, no, why don't you just get a job? And I was like, yeah, just get a job. So then just stayed stayed in London and didn't go home. And I got a job as a breakfast waitress in a hotel. And I thought, I'm set for life because <laughs> I, it came with accommodation in Notting Hill Gate. Fantastic. Then I changed to the night shift because I realised if I was going out at night, getting up for 5.30 breakfast wasn't a good plan. Yeah. But once I'd changed to a night shift, I was like, well, I could do this forever. Like I, I had no plan of like, well, really, you might want to think about a different career to being a waitress forever, you know. So in that way, I think maybe not the best advice, but in another way, it was just about 
you know, explore things and, and you'll find the thing. And then eventually I did find the thing I wanted to do. Yeah. What made you want to write this book? It genuinely started, like, she had died in the November and it was a very busy time of year. My diary was all booked up and I was on tour, so I hadn't sort of processed it. So we went on holiday to Florida and it was like, lie down on the beach, think about this. And my brain, I couldn't stop thinking about things. So I thought, write them down as a cathartic exercise. And that's when I think I'd written a couple of articles and sent them to you, a Mm -hmm. standard issue. One being, because I thought it might be advice for people about it being her cancer, because I hadn't read stuff like that. I'd seen a lot of positivity about cancer, but I hadn't seen people saying, be careful, because you have to think it's their cancer and be very careful around them. Because people with cancer, they they feel so raw that anything you might do, they might go, oh, you know, how dare you say that? Or I don't want to do that. Or you stop managing me. Or, you know, you have to be really careful to go just listen to them. How are they dealing with it? And that was the main thing I sort of learned, that we all kind of followed how she was dealing with it. And the, and the other thing, which sounds ridiculous, but I didn't quite realise how awful grief is and how many emotions are involved in it um, that I felt I needed. And then it was other people sort of saying, oh, I relate to that, that made me want to write more. And then, because I thought, oh, there's so much of Annie's writing, is there a way to put her writing in to a book that's about her, but also about grief? And I think that's sort of what I did to do memories of our childhood that then often fitted into a bit that she had written to, you know, about her own, you know, her childhood as well. And it was funny, the thing, I thought, the thing she wrote in the book about Northern Ireland, where our family's from, about the cousins. And I had felt exactly the same about the cousins as a kid, that they were, you know, they were a little bit frightening because they were very hardy compared to us, to be fair. Absolutely. (laughs) And you could just go out as long as it was light. We didn't realise this was Donegal. So it was light for a very long time in the summer (laughs) because you're right on the west. And we were like, it's 11 o'clock and apparently we don't have to go to bed. What is wrong with these people? Um, And she had the, the same sort of view. So... Yeah, I think it was then. And then as I was doing it, because Annie was a writer, I felt very close to her when I was doing it. I felt, I was like, oh, this is why she loved writing so much. Because I started to really enjoy just sitting at the computer. And it's a completely different way of writing to stand up because stand up, you, I tend to have an idea, but then has to sort of do it on stage to see. But this was like, no, I'm going to do each sentence and I really enjoyed the process and never wasn't bored by going, I'm going to read it again and write it again. And so I kept editing and editing and editing and sort of enjoyed that. And yeah, it was weird. It was like I sort of could feel her there. And then I also thought that she would have written about it had she come out the other side. So in a way, I felt it's writing the book that she couldn't write. Mm-hmm. Although every time I think that, I think I can also hear her voice going, Oh, so you think you can write as well as me? Is that what you think? <laughs> you actually touched on two questions I want to ask you. The first question I wrote down, because as I read a book and I'm going to uh, interview the author, then I, I note things down as I go. And the very first question I wrote down, which you've just answered, was obviously you were writing about Annie, so you were remembering stories and, and remembering her that way. But did the process of writing make you feel close to her? And apparently, yes, it did, that whole process. But also yeah. the very next thing I wrote, because obviously... Annie wrote for us so I've got a little inkling into Annie's nature 
And that was, how do you think Annie would feel about being the subject of a book written by you? It's funny, the written by me thing would be, I think she'd be sort of funny about it, of going, well, really, so now you've written a book. But she would be, oh, okay, if I can't, then I will have you do it. Or Martin, her partner, she would have let him do it as well. But also her ego would be, oh, so you've written a book about me. Oh, I feel. <laughs> the only thing I would add, Joe, is there should have been more about me. You, know, you seem to sometimes go on about you, but really we're more interested in me. So I think in that way, she would really like it. And she would love the fact um, that somebody emailed me the other day to say they'd read it and they'd gone on Amazon and bought one of her books because they wanted to hear more of her voice. And I thought, well, that's the dream, that that would happen, that people would then go, oh, I like the sound of her, I'd like to hear more, and then go and look for her writing. So that, of course, would very much appeal, that it's a way of her carrying on. So we're kind of covering all the, the positive aspects, but there's a line 134 pages in. 130, I even wrote down the number of the page, right? Wow. Where you say, I hope you were getting a sense of her. And I really yeah. felt your kind of sort of nervousness around that because it must have been a huge pressure to capture someone so yeah. big and so uncageable, but who you love on paper. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it was that way where she can be, like you're saying, the acerbic and the sort of grossness and the being in a bad mood about things. But so much of it was funny. So much of it was she knew it was funny the way she was behaving and I thought oh she could just come across as this really bad tempered woman if people don't (laughs) see that she also knows it's funny when she's like that so that was I was worried about that or that people would think she wasn't a very nice person because she seems to be constantly just snapping about things and hating everything and everyone but actually it was very adorable about her and so it was a worry and also generally to go oh why would anyone care? You know, they, I kept thinking they have to like, not even, they don't have to like us, but they have to at least find us interesting. Or, you know, do we, even if they're going, God, these God awful sisters, but I couldn't wait to see what was happening next or whatever. People had to be engaged. And it was very like, is this story interesting to anybody apart from me and my family? That was the worry. All three Caulfield siblings are performers in different ways, right? So obviously you're the one on stage. James is a priest, so he's doing yeah. his performance his thing. His servants, yeah. Yeah, and, and Annie was performing in the way that other people would read her words, but they were very much her words. Yeah, and she was a, a sort of, I mean, she'd done a little bit of performing and she was she was very good at, um, she was very good mimic, actually, better than me at that. So she would... You know, she'd be one of the, she could tell a story and like, you know, she'd be acting out. There would be voices. So she definitely, definitely had that in her. But what she didn't have in her was the wanting to be judged by an audience. So that's how she would see it. She'd go, I don't want to sit in front of those people like me doing my act. She'd go, how could you do that? Have them judge you. She would just be like, well, I'm not going to do comedy and see if people laugh or not. She wouldn't like that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, Judging was her thing, not someone else's yes. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love and I really appreciate, actually, that you, you don't shy away from some of the not-so-great bits of Annie. You know, you, you don't go into lots and lots of details, oh. but I think it's really tempting. I think it can be very tempting to look at the people we love and we adore and who aren't with us anymore 
purely through rose-tinted glasses, but it does them a massive disservice, I think. Yes, I think so. And I thought about that because also, one, it's tedious to just have a hagiography about somebody, isn't it? And go, well, yes. she sounds really nice, but oh, boring. <laughs> um, but also, I think, well, I think it's two things. I think one, when you love someone, you love them unconditionally with, mm-hmm. their, with their faults. And also knowing that, you know, human beings, we often, we can't help our faults. So we have aspects of our characters and some of it, obviously, because I'd grown up in the same family, I could see how she had become this way. Or that way. So I think in some ways part of it was that I admired her always trying to battle faults, you know, the drinking and also the competitiveness of things. She would try and I think that was a very lovely thing about her that people wouldn't have known if they didn't know her very well that she was constantly trying to be a better person. Mm-hmm. And I think she was finding a calmness and a happiness in the last sort of thing since she sort of became 50 those last yeah she was a a much happier and calmer person now you very boldly put the word funny in the same sentence as death there in that title joe i've got to say you did make me cry i was grateful i wasn't on a tube at the time but i had a little cry in my own front room because you you touch on cancer and grief and and how personal and how different their personalities are depending on the person and you do that really beautifully it's quite understated you're very understated about it I've got to say you made me laugh way more than I was sad though because though there is cancer and there's grief it's very very funny it's very funny it's totally your voice and what's funny is how much we laughed in the hospice she uh, was alive a lot longer than they thought. You know, they thought it was a couple of days and she I think she was nearly a month in there. Wow. And it sounds weird to say because she loved it. Well, she was at a spa. Yeah, she was at the spa and she thought the <laughs> room was so lovely and she was all like, oh, no, no, go. You can get tea, just go out there. You'll you'll get free tea. And uh, <laughs> and that she was comfortable and also that Martin, it took all the pressure off Martin from having to look after her. And she, you know, because she needed all the care and then, they're so amazing hospices that you can then enjoy the person. And we'd bring in wine and chat and she enjoyed that. And then gradually, you know, as she's, I don't understand how cancer does this to people, took her over. But she appeared, and we all said this, she appears well. She had an amazing capacity to seem like everything was fine. She would be laughing away, talking. It was only small things like when I she wanted me to cover her feet with a blanket and I thought oh my god she can't move her legs at all they were dead weights and I thought all she's really got now is her head she can talk she never seems short of breath which is weird for lung cancer and she can move her arms but she's lost the capacity to sort of grip things it was very strange how you I didn't know because she just you know she just appeared like she was still Annie, and she was, but physically she wasn't. And I think with the death thing, I was quite conscious that I thought about when people on the news read a sad story, you know, the end bit of the news where you go, a little girl fell down a well and died. And then they put on that voice of going, and a little, you know, and you go, don't act it, it's already sad. <laughs> so I thought, just say the words. And also, it was completely true to go, I didn't cry because I. I, it had not registered. I didn't know. I don't think you do know immediately what life is like without that of person. Of course. 
So I I did I I didn't cry, and I think I'd, I didn't cry until the funeral, when I had to read something out, and I was fine. And she had said that I was only to read something out, and I was annoyed at that because I thought, well, I could just speak, and it was when I just spoke that I oh, oh, and I just burst into tears, and her friends had to come up and sort of hold me up, and I thought, oh my god, she was absolutely right. Yeah, she. Knew. I could do the job I was given. But I couldn't, I wasn't ready to start talking about her. And there's a lot to do when someone dies as well. Like, there's a lot of thought for, we have to support Martin, her partner, and we have to get the funeral done. And at the funeral, lots of people wanted to talk to me. And you were there, which was lovely. And there were so many people that I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting them to come. And, oh, you're so grateful that people come. And it's it's really important. Yeah. And it felt really important that it was a packed room. And it really was. It absolutely was. So I felt a bit like I was on duty because people who didn't know me would be like, oh, my God, you must be Annie's sister because you look like her. You know, and then they say whatever they want to say. And I'm sort of on duty. So you you can't sort of think of it at first of what's happening. And it did take, I honestly think it took me two years to really think that she was gone and wasn't coming back. And then I realized, oh, but she's always here. And then I changed, and I think that's happened, you know, it's, what, seven years now that I've really settled into her being in my life, in my head, because otherwise I don't have her. So I choose to kind of think of things that I would talk to her about or so that she's always there and keeps going, you know, or things that she, oh, well, that would annoy her, you know. <laughs> Tell um, her that. And I, I didn't, yeah, exactly, which people do, and I suppose I didn't really know that grief is not what I thought that it doesn't go, changes, and then sometimes it suddenly whacks you over the head again. You're like, oh, my God, I didn't know I was still going to feel that emotion. Yeah. It's a messy old journey, and it's and it's not it uh, it's not got an end destination, and it's not linear. It's, uh, no. Yeah, and it's very personal as well. And also that the sadness isn't a bad thing. And in the show I'm doing in Edinburgh, I am reading a little bit from the book. And it's a funny bit, but it does end with scattering her ashes you know so it's sad and I say that she has cancer and I was very worried about that and then of, of upsetting people and then I've had people come up afterwards and I've, then I've seen people in the audience I've got oh my god they're going to cry and then realizing oh but they're like me they're in the grief club and so they you... come up and they go no it was nice because we know that that moment where you're sad and think about them is also being with them absolutely you want those moments, even though they're sad. It's like, no, don't worry about making me sad. And I think until you're in it and know it, you don't know what that feeling is. And that to make someone remember the person and then maybe, you know, have to go off the tour to cry. But it, it's not bad. It's I'm with them. And I would rather be thinking about them and have that nice closeness. You want that sadness because yeah. otherwise, you know, then they're just not there at all. There's an excellent tip about scouring ashes as well in your book because uh, James James <laughs> has the move right and when we Dad did that hand. when we yeah. did that with my grandma my grandma had been bed bound she'd been uh, arthritic wheelchair since I was like three and so when we put my grandma in the little hole we've got for her in the crematorium she fucked off she just flew off <laughs> like all the ashes went everywhere. and we were like oh that's kind of sweet really actually yeah. you know 
But it's, it's, it's such a weird thing, the whole ashes thing. And because it comes in this tube that is completely like a whiskey box, you'd think, oh, there's a nice whiskey in there. <laughs> and uh, But James, obviously being a priest, he's done it a lot. And he went, oh, no, you've got to really give it some welly. And you put it right down. If you're putting it by a tree or a bush, you put it right down and then whoop, and it sort of pushes it right down into the earth. So you don't get it all flying everywhere, which is sort of terrible. And it is amazing how, how much of it there is. Ugh. And also the thing about it, which was a bit weird and then it sort of made us laugh. The bush we put her on, about two months later, it was dead. Oh, oh, Annie. And we were like, and at first we were like, I was upset. And then I went, oh, no, that's hilarious. She's bloody killed that bush. She obviously <laughs> didn't like it. And then sort of other stuff grew, like ivy and stuff was grown on it. We're like, oh, she obviously prefers that. So, but it was like, oh. And it's funny the sort of relationship you have with that little area. And we always talk about the park keepers because I think Annie would like that. But we think of them as like 1960s men in suits, like you used to see in old films of park keepers. Because, you know, we go and put flowers there and things. And then the flowers sometimes are gone. And we went, oh, we've put too many. Or someone's just nicked them. But we always think, well, they must know that there's somebody there. You're not meant to do that. But they must know there's somebody there because they go, oh, they've been again. Look, there's a load of flowers there. <laughs> There was also another tip that I hadn't even thought about, and it's so striking, and it, it is one of the, the sadder parts of the book. And Annie was very clear, and you wrote about this for us, about it being her cancer, therefore she controls the narrative. I mean, that was Annie all over, always controlling the narrative, clearly, but this was going to be no different whatsoever. And you said you'd done it without realising, but you'd created a sort of typical, you see it on a film, deathbed scene. And that's yeah. when you all went, shit, what have we done? We, you know, she, she's not saying she's dying. She's saying she's coming home. And yeah, I thought, gosh, we just don't think about that because that must be terrifying to look at. Yeah. And it's funny the sort of how we all lose our manners about that. Like, especially in the hospice, I thought you don't just, uh, well, I don't. I'm not something that would drop in. And even with Annie, I would text her, say, oh, I'm in London. I'm near you. Can I pop into tea? But when someone's dying, all of a sudden everybody could just pile in. And because she still had energy and was compass mentors and everything, and when she said to me, she goes, I don't want everybody coming because I want some... She wanted to just spend time with Martin and have a normal day. Yeah. Kind of, although she wasn't having normal days, but to go, oh, we watch a bit of telly, have a bit of a chat, cup of tea, I'll have a nap, just to enjoy that. Rather than a million aunties and uncles and everybody that wouldn't normally be in your life. It was nice that everybody sort of came once and that was fun. But then you go, no, Len, just let them enjoy what they have and have some manners about yeah, it. Yeah. But it, particularly that when I saw us around, I was like, no, this looks terrible. And this would make her go, don't do this. Don't make me think about what this is because I'm not thinking about that. And she was very definitely, obviously she knew, but it was she didn't want things to be like that. I loved also that, you know, your big sister or your big brother, your big sibling, your elder sibling, that, that's it. That's it for life, right? Particularly if you're really close, which obviously you two yeah. were, very clearly were. And to the end, even though if you'd thought about it, you say that you'd have probably realised and you realised immediately afterwards, but because she was saying, no, no, I'm going to recover, leave the hospice and go home, you were shocked when that didn't happen. Because Annie had told you that's what was going to happen. Yeah. 
And it's a weird thing. And I don't know whether it was her saying it or just my brain going, no, we need to protect you from this because you've got things to do mm-hmm. in terms of you have to make the tea. Oh, I'm at the hospital. You have to make sure you have to be jolly for Annie and be funny and enjoy, you know, and not let her see that she's dying. So, uh, I mean, I can't believe, I thought, well, we would because we would gossip about people in other rooms. And then I'd go by and go, oh, that weird bloke with the, where the dog used to visit, he's not there, he's left. I thought they were just leaving. I didn't think people were dying. And what's funny is I looked at the website, I think I wanted some information about the hospice, and I looked on the website. And I was actually, this was shortly after she died, it was when we were doing the benefit for the hospice, and I was angry because I thought, I felt like they cheated me because I thought they don't put anything about anyone fucking dying. It's all like, it's going to be great. And then I thought, of course they don't. Because I thought of Annie and she had looked up the hospice and she said, oh no, it's great. It's like a spa. It's a halfway house. I'm getting some, what was it, physio. She didn't want to look up that and see people were dying. And I thought, oh God, they're absolutely right. That's what they're doing is sort of hiding that from people. And then it was also a partner, Martin, said it to me. We sort of passed on the way from the tube to the hospice, sort of doing shifts. And she'd been a bit crabby that day. And I was like, oh, I couldn't say anything right today. And he went, well, she's dying. And I thought, it's really rude. <laughs> I just thought, what rude thing to say. You know, just say that in the middle of Clapham Common. Oh, your sister's dying. It's a bit mad. And, you know, Martin's a lovely person. I thought, well, there's a, there's a side to him. Because he just came out with that. But it was, it was absolutely bizarre that I had that. And funny enough, I talked to somebody else and they said, no, they were exactly the same. They said their mother had cancer for 10 years and yet they were surprised, you know, when she died. Because you, you can't think of that life force leaving them. And in a way, like I say, I thought it did. It was a good thing because it really gave me time. I mean, I took, it took a very long time to realize what had happened. But I think that that was just what my brain had to do. Yeah, you took the time you needed. And I think that's, that is a really yeah. gorgeous thing that comes out of the funny thing about death. Is you really capture how personal it is. There's no right answers. There's no right way yeah. of dealing with it. There are more considerate ways we can probably be about other people and you capture that as well. But yeah, it's, it's how personal it is. The Funny Thing About Death is published by Polygon and available in all good bookshops. Am I right in thinking that all the proceeds go to Macmillan? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because I thought, I, I, you know, obviously I don't want to profit from this. Uh, so, And I, I have a lady that I work with at Macmillan and then, and she said, oh, well, we have to do this. We well, see how we do this. And then there was a whole legal process they had to go through. So, yeah, my, my other thought was, if it's really successful, I'd be like, oh, my God. And I said I'd give all the money to Macmillan because <laughs> I've signed a contract. Yeah, so that's great. So that, that because we created this fund, you can do these funds for people like Miller and Annie Caulfield Tribute Fund, which again, that would very much appeal to the ego that there's a fund in her name <laughs> and we've collected, up to this day, we've collected £58,000 in there. That's amazing. That's incredible. You know, and that's also a way of her sort of being useful and being here. And I, I know she would like that. And it sounds like she's uh, snuck into your Edinburgh show this year as well. So can you tell us yeah. the title of that, please? Well, the title of the show is Razor Sharp. Just to, you know, let people know there's going to be no holds barred. It's, <laughs> like, it's a Joe Caulfield show, right? Yeah, it's like this. <laughs> I, they, yeah, of course, sort of name things after, look, I'm going to be just going, I bloody hate this. You shut up. I don't like this. <laughs> uh, no, you're wrong. It's, it's a stupid thing. Um, so 
it's that there's a stand-up show of just sort of the last year what you know things that has happened and um so the book coming out is one of the things that's happened so i thought don't read just a funny bit because then that's not fair to the audience because they might go oh there's this hilarious book and then start reading and go oh my god <laughs> you know so it's, a, it's an interesting thing to do and then also i thought about you know sort of the age i am a lot of the audience i thought we're all the age we're losing people now yep so people will have been through it or going through it, although you don't get through it. You're in it forever. So I thought, no, let's just be grown up about it. And that actually, on the preview so far, that is how it's been, that people have gone, part of life. It's part of life, you know, and it it is funny. Always funny things happen in death and at funerals, and we do laugh. So let's not be po-faced about this. It's a very, it's the worst thing that can happen. So it's, you know, that's that's just fact. So you'd be as well, try to be funny. And we're all, that's what human beings do. So that that's in the show. And then I sort of have ways of, you know, getting us out of it <laughs> again as well, <laughs> which is quite funny, that sort of gear change. But yeah, I'm sort of interested in, in, in doing it as being part of life, you know. Let's not avoid it. We can't avoid it. No. And people shouldn't avoid your gigs. Where can they find out information about where you're going to be as well as Edinburgh? What are you on the, the various socials? Oh, yeah, I'm on tour. I'm on tour from September. Um, the tour is actually called Here Comes Trouble because it'll be last year <laughs> and this year put together. Um, so I'm on tour in from September right through until spring. And I'm also doing some book things because I'll be you know selling the book after the show as well. And I'm on all the socials, uh, just Joe Caulfield. Joe, thank you for writing such a fucking gorgeous book. I really loved it. Oh, uh, forgive me for making you. me cry. It's fine. I'll let you off. And all the best with it for Macmillan. So we're going to change it to a cervic high status and too generous for our own good. That's your new description. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. And also don't forget that it was you who first started me with the, the writing. So thank you. Well done me, really, out of all of this. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.